So please sit comfortably. And uh, this is the last evening, last opportunity to uh, reflect on Dhamma during this retreat in this way, last Dhamma talk. So we've spent these these days together, and uh, I'm imagining that for some of you at the beginning, it probably seemed that the end was impossibly far away. You know, were you ever going to make it through these days of, of retreat? And now suddenly it's the end, well, almost the end. Uh, I've noticed over the years that retreats have a kind of um, a particular pattern to them. You know, the first evening is often a little bit awkward, people unfamiliar with the chanting, style of doing things, not quite sure about the whole, um, how they're going to manage. And then if you go after breakfast on the first day, everybody's a little bit more relaxed. <laughs> uh, first day or two, people getting into it, and then a point of change, and then suddenly everyone's um, beginning to think about leaving, going home, going back to work seems to be what happens, uh, the nature of the mind. Mind's a very, uh, very remarkable phenomenon. Uh, the um, ways that it assesses, assesses things and makes adjustments uh, depending on what it, uh, what it, what it picks up. And so now we've, we've reached the, um, the last evening, and uh, you know, thoughts of um, how it's going to be after the retreat, and uh, and maybe a, a bit of a sense of relief, <laughs> having survived, uh, and maybe a sense of. Um, gladness and satisfaction at having uh, put forth the effort to uh, to come here, to be here, to stay here, to follow follow the routine, sitting, walking, um, keeping the silence, and generally making making the effort to, to fit in with the uh, structure that has been established for uh, retreat here, and uh, it's something that makes a huge difference um, just to how the general feeling of a retreat when everybody is able to to participate in this way it actually makes it a, well certainly my experience of it is you know it's a pleasant experience uh, living with all of you during these days and uh, I expect for all of us there were times when it was a little bit difficult, tired, and uh, maybe the mind not calming down quite to the extent we would like, uh, maybe difficult memories, you know, feelings of unhappiness, sadness, sorrow arising, uh, fears, concerns um, about different things in your lives. Um, 
and yet the uh, the willingness to to follow as best one can uh, to fit in with um, the structures is is very um, it's very encouraging. It's very encouraging, very supportive. Um, you know, not just for me, but for, for for everybody here. So I'd like to just acknowledge that and express my appreciation. It's always a question in my mind, you know, what to talk about. Sometimes it just arises. I start talking, and suddenly I'm talking about something in particular. Other times, uh, there's a feels as though there's a decision to be made. Should I talk about this, or that, or that? Or maybe I should talk about that. And uh, one, of the, one of the themes that arose today uh, in conversation with somebody was the, um, that I thought might be um, fun to explore, is the, um, the Wheel of Life. This is actually a Tibetan uh, teaching, and if you go to any Tibetan monastery, and sometimes in Theravada monasteries as well, um, at the entrance you'll see a picture of um, the Wheel of Life. Very, very colourful, very, uh, a lot going on there. <laughs> and uh, the way it's depicted is of a big, big circle, and uh, there's this enormous um, being kind of devouring it. I think it's Yama. Time, God of time. And then within the wheel, there are different um, uh, divisions. And, and also, there, there are circles within circles. And then right at the center... There's a point, just a little, um, little point, which is like the hub of the wheel. And this is, this is my interpretation of it. The hub of the wheel, which is a point that, that doesn't actually move. It's a still point. And while the wheel turns, and, um, I like to see this as like the still point of knowing, which is kind of what we've been trying to cultivate, or which we have been cultivating. Not trying. We we have been cultivating uh, that capacity to hold steady and to watch and to notice as the mind goes through all these different realms, these different experiences throughout the day. Some of you, I hope, all of you have had times when you felt peaceful and calm and happy, and uh, just a sense of being settled. And maybe also other times of um, other things happening, you know, feelings of agitation, fear, worry, uh, maybe difficult memories, um, feelings of hurt, disappointment, grief, sorrow, these kind of things. Um, this is quite this is quite normal for retreat because retreat is a time when things arise, and what we're cultivating, as I said, is just this. This inner, the capacity to watch, to see clearly. Um, I see this this still point as being like the way out. Uh, normally, uh, <clears throat> we try to grab on to 
the, we grab onto the conditions that we like and try to kind of hold on to them to fix them. But unfortunately, when the, the wheel just carries on turning, so if we try to hold on to any bit of it, we just get carried into a kind of uh, continual movement. Uh, so we try to hold on to the things we like. We try to we hold on in a different way to the things that we don't like. We try to get rid of them, to push them away, rather than appreciating that letting go is not making go, but actually allowing, allowing to go. So there's this kind of softening, this relaxing, this opening. You know, okay, now you know you can be here as long as you need to be here, and when it's time to go, please feel free to go. So a much, a much gentler kind of intention than the kind of vigorous feeling of having to get rid of. Sometimes a certain amount of vigor is necessary, like if we have a very strong, uh, if we feel very, very angry or upset about something. You know, sometimes we have to um, vigorously uh, suppress it. You know, if you're in a very public situation or if there's a real danger that you might do or say something that would be very regrettable, then, you know, you, there is a need for a kind of forcefulness. Um, but, of course, you can't sustain that. And with these kind of angry, upset energies, um, it's actually important that we understand them. So we can have a vigorous, forceful suppression, <laughs> which can last for a short while, but then... We need to find a time that we can allow them into consciousness in order to understand what it was that gave rise to that rage. So these are all things that we can experience and that are uh, depicted graphically on this wheel of life. So in the middle, the very, very still point, and then immediately around um, the still point. There are three animals. Um, there's a, a pig, there's a cockerel, and there's a snake. And these represent the things that keep the wheel turning. These represent greed, aversion, greed or lust, aversion, negativity, and delusion. And sometimes people think that the pig is greed, but the pig is actually delusion. Pigs like to sleep a lot. <laughs> the the greed or the lust is the cockerel. And the snake represents aversion, the uh, negativity. And I don't say that snakes are, are bad. There's anything wrong with snakes. Snakes are actually rather beautiful creatures. And they have their ways. Um, but in, in the in the mythology... Uh, this is the way that the uh, creatures are represented. These are what they symbolize. So the three, um, they're actually called three fires, greed, hatred, and illusion. Anyway, th these energies that, that keep the wheel turning. <coughs> then within the, within the wheel, we have these different segments. So there's the human realm, there's the deva realm, there's the asura realm, there's the animal realm, there's the hell realm, and the preta, uh, peta, pretaloka, 
the, the realm of the hungry ghosts. And I'd like to talk a little bit about each of these because um, I find them very helpful in, in uh, understanding the uh, conditions that I experience. Uh, they, they kind of represent for me like the human condition. And we, we could, you know, there, there are, uh, you, you could see them as being actual sort of external things, but in terms of our practice, sometimes it can be more helpful just to see them as different states that we move through in the course of our life. <clears throat> and within each realm, there's um, the Buddha appears, a Buddha figure, with um, whatever is needed to support the beings in those realms. Now they say that the human realm is the most fortunate realm for liberation. So all of us, we, we're very fortunate to be in the human realm. And we're very fortunate to have come across these teachings. These teachings, this way of practice. Because we have the possibility uh, through hearing the teachings, through applying the teachings in our lives, we have the possibility to, for, for Nibbana, to liberate ourselves, to escape from the whole thing, to get off the wheel. That's within our capacity. Um, it may take a few lifetimes, or we may manage it this lifetime. Let's, let's hope we all manage it this lifetime. That will be the best. So why is it the human realm is considered to be so fortunate? <clears throat> This is because we have these bodies, these, um, I use the word coarse, I just mean like the, the, the very, the, the, there's, the, there's matter here, there's, there's a substance here. Um, they're, they're, not, they're not particularly refined, um, although if you go into sort of quantum physics, then then you probably would see it as a sort of mass of vibrations. But <clears throat> in our everyday experience, these bodies, they have weight, they have mass, they're awkward, they're uncomfortable, they require a lot of maintenance, as I've already said. And um, they're not, you know, although superficially they might, you know, some bodies might appear to be very beautiful, actually, they're they're quite gross in some aspects. <laughs> not, 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 uh, there, there, are, there are aspects of the body that is not, not beautiful, not pleasant to be around. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of suffering, you know, physical pain, discomfort, cold, hunger, the need to survive, the fear of being uh, devoured by something or harmed in some way. So. And, and subject to all kinds of desires, you know, hunger, uh, sexual desire, um, sort of the, um, the aggressive you know, uh, um, fear, anger, these, these kind of experiences um, <clears throat> that are part of the human realm. Uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of suffering in having a human body. Um, but the good news is that we also have the capacity to reflect. Uh, 
We have the, the we have the intelligence. We have the capacity to um, consider, to contemplate um, this phenomenon of having um, a body. This is different from the animal realm because the animal animals they have they have these bodies. They have bodies that are not that much different to ours. Um, in some animals, if you look at you know, if you look at a pig, for example, I mean, there's you know they're the same sort of coloring. <laughs> They've got these little hairs on them. Um, you know, they're not that much different. Monkeys, you know, animal bodies are, are not that much different from ours, but they don't have the same capacity to reflect. Devadas are very intelligent. They have very refined minds uh, that can uh, that absolutely love to to reflect on things, to consider things, to philosophize, to, to create beautiful music and poetry and art. Uh, but the devas, they actually don't have the same coarse physical bodies, <laughs> so they don't have the same suffering that we have. <clears throat> So in the human realm, we have the, the 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 coarse bodies. We have the suffering of having a body that's earthbound, and we also have the capacity to reflect. <clears throat> we also have the capacity to um, keep sila and keep um, precepts. You know, to aspire to live uh, in a way that is is considerate and helpful to others, and to take responsibility for for our lives. Um, this is a very important aspect of our humanity, and it's interesting that the Buddha uh, in the human realm comes in the form of an alms mendicant comes in the form of a monk or a nun. Actually, Buddhas, nuns can't be Buddha. One of the suttas which says it's completely impossible for a woman to be a, a fully enlightened Buddha. But actually, it's impossible for anybody to be a fully enlightened Buddha because for there to be a fully enlightened Buddha, the Dhamma has to have disappeared. So it's not a problem. But we can all be arahants. <laughs> We can all be fully enlightened, but um, so anyway, it's, it's a is a is a is a is a mendicant, a beggar. So this is this is interesting to contemplate. So what is it within the human realm that needs the presence of alms mendicants? When I first came across this teaching, it was pointed out to me that. Um, uh, the significance of dana, of offering, and as as alms mendicants, there is the um, uh, alms mendicants make themselves available to receive. Uh, so, in 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 this situation, we have this kind of mutual dependency that there are the beings that. Are available to receive, and then the beings who are willing to offer. It's a very, it's a very beautiful uh, relationship. 
um, giving and receiving. And I don't know about you, but um, one of one of the things that really brings me a lot of joy is to be able to offer, to be able to support in some way, according to my my situation, my capacity. And when I was a layperson, I I found a lot of joy in uh, being able to support those who had chosen to live in this way as as alms mendicants. Mm. <clears throat> so encouraging uh, generosity. In the Deva realm, which is kind of at the top of the wheel, uh, there are beings who uh, also absolutely love to give, and they also love beauty. They're completely addicted to beauty. So beautiful music, beautiful poetry, uh, beautiful clothing, refinement. Um, and they really don't want to know about old age, sickness and death. <laughs> uh, and devas li- can live for a very, very long time. They, they, they are, I mean, they, they, they're not infinite. They don't live forever, but they can live for, uh, eons, which is an extremely long time. Um, <clears throat> there's a story I like to tell of a little incident at Chithurst one time. And we have a friend who's a, a, an artist, a Thai um, artist, and he'd painted a, a, a painting, actually for, he'd been commissioned to paint this painting for a restaurant. And it was a painting of these um, devas, these very, um, very, very stylized um, beings, very, very beautiful, with kind of hats, sort of golden hats, pointed hats, and uh, very, very kind of delicate in the way that they move, very particular style. And I was sitting quite close to Arjun Samedo, and he was he was looking at this painting, and somebody said to him. <coughs> Something like, you know, is, is, is that where you'd like to go, Lumpur? And I was very interested in his response. He said, he said, oh, he said, I'd be so disappointed. <laughs> so it might seem very nice and very desirable, you know, just to be surrounded by beauty for eons, but it's not liberation. We're still bound into the wheel of birth and death. And they say that when a, when a devada is about to die, you know, when a devada gets old and is about to, to, to die, all the others just reject it. They, 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 don't, they really don't like it. They don't like to be reminded. A little bit like our society in some ways. Uh, I mean, less so now, because so many of us, well, I don't know, maybe it is still more so, but as, as, you know, as many of us are getting older, uh, it's something that we contemplate and, uh, you know, there can be a tendency to sort of not really want to consider old age, you know, put them, put them out of the way. So, um, I think for, for Asian families, it's, it's very shocking that we have, 
so many uh, retirement homes, is, is what they're called. And because in in that, those cultures, there's a um, under, understanding that, of course, the old people stay with the family, a very close family unit, and they're they're just included in the family. But it's not something that is um, so readily available here, just because of the circumstances that people live under socially. You know, most people don't have space for their parents, their grandparents, you know, the extended family to, to live in the same house with them. And so the older people get put somewhere else. But there's a great um, value in uh, being around older people. Uh, we had a... This is a bit of a ramble. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> I, and I hope you find it useful. I, I, I try to say things that are useful. Uh, so I'll go on. I'll tell you about this old lady we had. We had this old lady living with us. And uh, she stayed with us for seven, eight, seven, eight years before she, until she died. And um, she died at the age of 91. So she was very old. She came when she was 83. And uh, I was very involved with looking after her. And it was very, very powerful contemplation and very, very helpful because I had never really wanted to contemplate old age. Uh, it was very uncomfortable to consider that I might get old and be like, like old people. <laughs> and, you know, to have hearing aids and false teeth and things like that and then to become incontinent. <laughs> You know these things that you just you know you just shun, uh, you know, draw back from. But this old lady, she had all of these things: hearing aids, old false teeth, lots and lots of spectacles, and then she was incontinent. And what was interesting for me was just the the way that she um, endured these conditions. Um, how at ease she was with it all, with, a, with an old body. And that was a very powerful teaching for me. And I've, I, mean, I won't say we all did, but I found a tremendous joy also in looking after her. You know, we, we did a lot. Well, we had to do everything for her. You know, I used to bathe her. I used to um, uh, help her clean her room, change her bedding all the time. Um, we used to take turns to take her to the sala for the pujas. She would call us her taxi. She would go, oh, you're my taxi. And then we would walk, and she would walk along beside us very slowly. She'd shuffle along. We'd have to start about 15 minutes before the puja time and shuffle along, and then, you know, she'd, she'd arrive and a bit of a huffing and a puffing. And, and she was very, very devotional, very diligent in her practice. And so having that opportunity was a very powerful learning because firstly to realize what a, how pleasurable it was to look after her. It wasn't a burden. She didn't feel like a burden. She thought she was a burden, but I didn't feel she was a burden. And also her sense of ease with being old. This is something that I'm having to work at now because I'm getting old. And, you know, getting a little bit forgetful. I think my hearing's still pretty good, but sometimes I have to say, excuse me. <laughs> These um, facts that we, well, most of us will have to experience at some point, just coming to terms with 
this aspect of our human existence. And one time somebody asked me a question about old age, and this was when I was much younger, a long time ago, and what I um, said was actually one of the things that I felt was really important that this lady had was she had a sweet heart. And so for all of us, what we can consider, you know, as we get older is just, how is my heart? Do I have a sweet heart? Not do I have a sweet heart. <laughs> but is, is my heart sweet? You know, or am I a grumpy old, bad-mouthed old lady? Uh, and just to consider that, because, you know, when you look after somebody who actually has tried to cultivate uh, this quality of, of gratitude, of appreciation, of kindness, it's it's not a burden, it's a joy. Whereas if somebody is ungrateful, I mean, admittedly, this lady, she was extremely difficult, and she wasn't always grateful. She could be very uh, annoying, and uh, she knew just how to wind us up. But there was a sense, an, a, an underlying sense of gratitude and love, love for the Dhamma. So um, we all of us learnt a lot. So as a human being, we reflect on these things, we contemplate these things. As a devada, we try to avoid thinking about these things. And sometimes people come to the monastery and they come in their best clothes, really beautifully dressed, and you just think, yeah, they're like Deva does. They're very, very generous, and they derive, They, you can just have a sense of tremendous joy that they experience from, from making offerings, from doing good things. They love goodness. And that's, you know, there's something to learn from that, from there too. So for us as, as human beings in the human realm, you know, cultivating these these beautiful qualities. There's nothing wrong with it. As long as we stay in touch with our, our mortality, with our coarse physical bodies, don't lose touch with that. As I said, they love beauty, they love music, they love poetry. And the uh, Buddha for the, or the figure for the, for the Deva Loka is uh, some, a musician, like a, a, kind of like a heavenly musician. Uh, which um, reminds me of a story uh, when I was first with Ajahn Chah. He came to London, and some of you may have heard this before. But he, um, somebody asked him a question about about music, because as you know from monastics, we don't we don't play music, we don't listen to music, and uh, this person was very concerned about this because she was a musician. And it was her livelihood. And she, 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 she had a conversation with Ajahn Chah and said, well, and she was a flautist actually. And at that time I was learning to play the flute. So I was especially interested. And, uh, she said, but, you know, some, some music is just so, so, so spiritual. You know, what about Bach? What about Mozart? You know, I love Bach and Mozart. And, uh, so I was very interested to hear what Ajahn Chah would say. And his response was, well, once you've experienced the beauty of a quiet heart, you realize that other kinds of music are not quite so beautiful. 
They don't have the same quality. So I thought that was a very interesting answer. And you know, perhaps some of you over these days have had just a little taste of that, just a delicious uh, quality of, of inner quiet when the heart is resting. Um, Ajahn Sumedha talks about the, the sound of silence a lot, which he finds very um, beautiful, and some of you may work with that, which is, is another kind of um, beauty. Um, but the, the quiet heart. <clears throat> the next realm is the realm of the Asuras, and these are the powerful beings. Uh, it's another kind of realm of the gods. We have lots and lots of gods in Buddhist cosmology. The, 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 the devadas are sort of very refined beings, and then there's the, the powerful asuras, the titans, and they're always going to war with something or other. <laughs> and um, they can also get very jealous, and they they long for power. Uh, that's what they love, power and wealth and um, to be able to, to dominate, to uh, control others. <clears throat> then we come to the animal realm, which I've already said a little bit about. And these animals who who are trapped in these bodies but they don't have the capacity to reflect, to understand. They can't keep precepts. So it's interesting, we sometimes have these cats. In fact, most monasteries seem to have these remarkable cats who just kind of show up. And uh, they seem to love to be around monasteries. Uh, <clears throat> but no matter how hard we try, we can't get them to keep the first precept. It's completely hopeless. <laughs> it's their nature, it's their instinct to kill. That's what they do, that's what animals do. They kill other beings. That's how they survive. And sometimes people, you know, well, we often talk about nature as being so beautiful, and there is certainly um, an aspect of nature that's really beautiful. Um, but there's also an aspect of it that is uh, quite violent, quite destructive. Um, and I remember one friend saying, "You know, everything eats. Everything's eating everything." <laughs> you know, and when you live in the countryside, you see this. There's always something eating something, uh, devouring something. You know, the fish eat the insects. The bats eat the insects. Big insects eat the smaller insects. Uh, the otters eat the fish. The beavers eat the trees. <laughs> and so on. Uh, foxes eat rabbits. Wolves eat foxes, I suppose. We don't have terribly many wolves now, which means that we um, have a lot of deer and a lot of beavers. So there's always something eating something in nature. <clears throat> so the animals, they have uh, plenty of fear and plenty of hunger. 
very strong survival instinct, um, and they don't have the capacity to reflect on their situation. Uh, the um, Buddha for the animal world brings books, which might seem a bit strange, but basically <laughs> what animals need is, is knowledge, is understanding. Uh, that's the thing that's going to help them to to get off the wheel, to 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 um, to do the work, to liberate themselves. Next, we come to the hell realms, and this is a really alarming realm. And those of you who've seen pictures by people like Hieronymus Bosch will have a sense of what the hell realm is like. Um, all all kinds of really ghastly ghastly punishments. And in some of the scriptures, uh, the Buddha describes the hell realms. And you sort of say, oh gosh, is, is there really such a place? Can it really be like that? And I don't know whether these realms actually exist, You know, whether there's a physical reality. But I do know that within my own mind, I can experience hellish states. <coughs> The qualities of of vengefulness, you know, wanting to wanting to hurt, wanting to harm, to take revenge, um, these kind of qualities, um, hatred, aversion, uh, these are all sort of can be seen as as hellish qualities. And it's interesting that, like, when His Holiness Dalai Lama was asked about, um. The people who were harming uh, the Tibetan uh, nation and the people and the monks, the nuns, the monasteries—dreadful, dreadful things that have happened and maybe still happening in the world. Um, Dalai Lama would say, "Well, he just feels compassion because when you do these hellish things, um, it's as though you're in the hell realm already." And those um, deeds, those actions, stay with you. They don't. They're not just obliterated. And like you know, when talking the other day about um, like self-forgiveness, you know, when we make a mistake, we do something wrong. You know, all of us have made mistakes, and all of us had, have had to remember the mistakes we've made. And if you do really uh, cruel and violent and awful things, then your mind is not going to be peaceful and happy. You'll experience a lot of fear and a lot of um, really unpleasant, hellish mind states. So Dalai Lama said he just feels compassion because that's what um, these beings are creating for themselves, they're creating a future in a hellish realm of some kind or another. There are bodhisattvas of compassion within the Mahayana tradition who go right down into the lowest hell to rescue these beings, to, to, to bring them some kind of relief, to help to pull them out. And uh, there are some very touching teachings about that.
The Hungry Ghost is another fairly unpleasant place to end up. <laughs> A place that all of us have spent time, and probably continue to spend time. And Hungry Ghosts are the beings that have, they're depicted as having enormous bellies. They're rather sort of strange, kind of pot-bellied creatures with a very long, thin neck and a little slitty mouth. And the neck is, um, what, they, they, they can only eat a very little bit at a time. They can't take in large, large quantities of, of anything. And everything they take in burns, burns their throat. So it's a very unpleasant, harmful experience. And they're never full. There's always wanting more, more and more and more. And this is kind of like the realm of those beings who are addic you know, have, have different kinds of addictions, you know, who are looking for satisfaction through either through substances or through wealth. That's also a kind of addiction. That's also a kind of being a, like a hungry ghost. And somebody told me one time, and I can't remember who it was, where this quote comes from, but some fabulously wealthy person had billions and billions and billions of pounds. And he was asked, you know, well, you know, when, when, when will it be enough? You know, when will you feel that you can relax, that you've got enough? It was a very telling answer. He said, when I've got just a little bit more than I have right now, that'll be enough. And of course, you get a little bit more, and then you want more, and then you want more, and then you want more. It's never enough. I think all of us uh, experience this realm at different times. Desire for love, desire for acceptance, desire for friendships, um, desire for, for praise. Rabindranath Tagore has a very telling uh, saying, which I love to quote, which is, Praise shames me, for secretly I beg for it. You know, all of us want to be praised, want to be appreciated, and we make tremendous efforts to to do the right thing, to be to be acceptable, to be to be okay. I mean, that may not be everybody's experience, but certainly I think many people experience this. Um, to be okay, to be acceptable. I contemplate this a lot because, you know, I've, I've, well, I was addicted to cigarettes one time. I certainly like praise. Um, and there are many, um, different ways that I can, uh, experience a sense of not being satisfied, needing more. Of, of different things. And one of the things, a little bit like I was talking about yesterday, one of the things that I've found helpful in like, filling this, this void is actually, um, rather than looking for praise or love or acceptance from outside, you know, reassurance from outside, you know, rather than sort of saying, am I all right? Is it all right? Is that all right? Was that all right? It's just actually being able to Say to oneself, it's all right. You're all right. 
You'll do. You're good enough. So we can contemplate that that longing for more, that sense of never really feeling that we're we're good enough, that we're okay. That terrible sense of being on a treadmill, just trying to trying to do enough, trying to be good enough, um, so that we can then relax. And then, of course, we never get there. So this is where we have to um, learn how to uh, be good enough in our own eyes, not to expect constant uh, reassurance or appreciation from outside. So the um, <clears throat> the Buddha for the realm of the hungry ghosts brings um, uh, treasures like um, in fact Kuan Yin appears in the realm of the hungry ghosts as I recall with a kind of soothing balm just to soothe the 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 anguish of just taking in and uh, being harmed. By the by, the substances that one is constantly devouring, constantly feeling that one needs, um, and then just to consider um, the um, the pleasure of like wholesome action uh, as a as a balm, you know, rather than being concerned about whether somebody loves me. You know, what can I do for somebody else? Can I love and care for somebody else? You know, sometimes when I've been a bit glum, um, I've made a point of doing something kind. You know, just some small thing. And it's interesting how doing that just immediately brings a sense of uplift, a sense of brightness. Doing something to make somebody happy. Even a small thing. Rather than always... Um, dwelling on my own lack or inadequacy. So I find this quite an interesting realm to contemplate. So we don't stay continuously in any one of these realms. We kind of move through them different times. Some of them we enjoy. Some of them obviously we don't enjoy. Nobody enjoys hell, I don't think particularly. Or maybe some people don't even realize they're in hell. Maybe they feel that that's, that's just a natural way of being. I don't know. And then realizing that there is a way out. You know, through that, that point of, of knowing. The Buddha knowing the Dhamma that point of stillness, the letting go of the attachment, the involvement with any of these realms, and just watching, noticing them as they turn around us, but taking up residence in the, the central point, the point of knowing, knowing the human realm, knowing the deva realm, knowing the realm of the asuras, the, the, uh, the titans, the warlike, jealous gods, knowing the animal realm, knowing the hell realm and the realm of the hungry ghosts, 
all part and parcel of this human existence. All of us experience these things. All of us can be liberated from this wheel of birth and death. So may each one of us realize Nibbana, realize the deathless in this very lifetime. I offer this to your contemplation this evening.